Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. I made a first call to after doing the research of the best biggest shark lawyer in Tampa. And I went and I sat down, I told him what I wanted. And, you know, and that was to destroy Nikki, embarrass her, show the world what a fraud she was and how this was her right. fault. And, you know, a week later, after taking a pretty big retainer check, he wrote, uh, you know, a game plan, uh, a strategic game plan on how we were going to accomplish all the things that I'd asked him for. Meanwhile, the umbrella is that I'd already lived this, right? I'd lived in this world. Here I was going to go do it again. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Benjamin Heldfond. Benjamin grew up in San Francisco, where he lived through what he calls a high-conflict divorce. He internalized the breakup as a signal that he was bad. The experience was like miracle grow for his growing drinking and heroin addiction, which eventually led to a flatline overdose that saw him clinically dead. But even that didn't lead to his sobriety. Ben eventually entered treatment, found help, and six years into his recovery, moved to Florida with the woman he would eventually marry. The move carried a great deal of resentment towards his wife, which manifested in Ben living as a dry drunk without any accountability for his actions. This led to turmoil in the relationship. The two had a son together and divorced bitterly shortly after. Only after reflection did Ben see that left unchecked, he threatened to repeat the same painful pattern that he'd lived as a child. The realization moved him to call his therapist and sponsor. Ben eventually co-authored the book, Our Happy Divorce, with his ex-wife, Nikki, which told the story of how their journey through divorce eventually brought them closer together. This is a really interesting conversation. Unfortunately, relationships are often lost in the course of the addiction journey, but this story tells how the tools learned along the way eventually led to the best outcome for everyone involved. It's a testament to how living in accountability has the power to heal even when there doesn't seem to be a path forward. I absolutely love this conversation because it encompasses recovery and it encompasses doing lifey things, life on life's terms. And that is exactly what Ben and Nikki did. And it has greatly benefited their son. I'm so happy to hear that they changed that cycle or didn't repeat it. So check out Our Happy Divorce on all the social media platforms, the book where all books are sold. And without further ado, I give you Benjamin Heldfond. Let's do this. You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Ben, thank you for being here. 
Thank you very much uh, for having me. I look forward to our uh, conversation. Yeah, me too. I relate a lot to parts of your story. So I'm excited to get into it and talk also about your book, Our Happy Divorce, which I think is awesome because it needs to be talked about. It's 50% of marriages end in divorce, but there's no conflict resolution. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. I want to start with your sobriety date. Uh, it is November 3rd, 1994. Awesome. And I feel so old every time I say that, but <laughs> I guess I am. It's funny because I, I, I used to go to young people's meetings mm-hmm. uh, and yep. I question whether, you know, there, there's a couple that I've been to and I was like, I mean, I was sober. I was young when right. I was sober, but now I'm a... Does it count? Man. Does it count? I, I read this. So I used to, I used to be all in YPA, young people's mm-hmm. meetings, all that, and uh, got sober at 19. And so... That was a huge part of my recovery. And uh, I was reading, I got some email and it was saying that it was to 35, like young people. And it had like a little note that it was to 30. Oh, they've defined it now. There were in this particular newsletter, it was mentioned to there's because I've heard young at heart too, you know. Right. Right. Or is it young when you got sober? Who knows? But anyways, yeah, yeah I, I was uh, 21 when I got sober and I'm not 21 anymore. So but still sober. <laughs> so that's the important part, I yeah. guess. Yeah, that's that. That's the key part. So tell me a little bit about you. You grew up in Bay Area, right? Mm-hmm. San Francisco. San Francisco. Your parents had a what you describe as a high conflict divorce. Can you tell me a little bit about growing up? in that situation. Yeah. I, uh, like I said, grew up in San Francisco, uh, and about 12 or 13, you know, uh, I, I don't ever remember my parents being very affectionate towards each other. It wasn't mm-hmm. a very, I mean, it was, it, it wasn't a, just some homes, you know, that, that I've heard of, but it just wasn't a very loving and affectionate home. Uh, and then I'd remember my parents sort of fighting out in the open more than, you know, who I, I had been aware of in the past. And, you know, one day they they sat us down uh, at the kitchen table. I have two brothers and a sister, and there was the event. Right, mom mm-hmm. and dad's moving out. Mom and dad are getting a divorce, and that was it. Right, and, and there was no room. Uh, there was no opportunity uh, for us as children to express ourselves, to ask questions, to you know, tell our truths. Did you try? I did try later. Uh, you know, uh, to try to express like you know, when mom and dad were talking bad about each other, uh, you know, don't do that. And, you know, that was quickly shot down and shamed and, and, and mm. you know, you don't know, and, and you know, martyr right. and all that stuff. You don't know what right. I put up with. And it just added gasoline uh, to the fire. But, but at the, at, at, when it happened, like I said, I was about 12 and I didn't have any tools, uh, you know, especially not an opportunity to express myself. Uh, so I internalized it. And I always sort of yeah. one of those people that, need certainty and uh, look for certainty and also internalize stuff. And, yeah. you know, I was like, this is bad. This doesn't feel good. I don't like these feelings. So the certainty and the conclusion I drew, however crazy and mixed up it was, was that I'm bad, that I'm broken. And, and so that sort of, you know, uh, was the pattern that was created uh, at that moment that sort of led me, uh, you know, through my life. And then I found drugs and alcohol and not that I hadn't had them before or, or tried them before, but they also worked great at, you know, not feeling those feelings and, and you totally. know, I was self-destructive. You know, my patterns and those thoughts were just as destructive in my life as drugs and alcohol. 
Yeah, that's uh, super relatable. And, and I think, you know, we learn how to deal with conflict, with chaos in those situations. And one of the things that, uh, that, you know, I look at with that kind of thing is how am I teaching my kids to yeah. like, if I'm, if I'm bringing a conflict or, or some sort of thing to the table, how am I teaching the kids how, how they should, what it's, what's normal. And I think that really set the tone for what was normal for you, which was, you're not really allowed to have those feelings or, because, or they're wrong or, right. uh, you know, and it was just a, you know, for the years, it wasn't just that event you know, uh, of the announcement, if you will, but it was the years yeah. after that and the conflict and, and, and the, you know, almost the, the reversal of roles right. of being so protective of each, you know, the, the other parent when their job was to protect you know, us and, and, right. and not, and not hand us the emotional bill to pay for their decisions. You know, we didn't pick the restaurant. We didn't right. order the wine. We didn't order any, we had no choice right. in the in, in the situation. And, and so, you know, it was just a terrible place, uh, you know, uh, of there, there's just certain things that stick out to me and, you know, whether it was a school event or a sporting event and mom and dad would be there and, you know, dad would be over as far as he could in right field and mom, you know, as far as way they could possibly be in the same room and having to walk over thinking to myself, okay, who did I go over to last First. time? I think I went to mom. I don't want to go over to dad and hurts mom's right. feelings, but I think I went to, you know, and it's just this place that, 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 that no kid should have to be in. What are some of the things? So that was a great example. What are some of the other things that you in a high conflict divorce? So, Cause we're going to talk really, we're going to talk about what the happy divorce situation looks like, mm. but a lot of people are going through and, and, you know, I can only imagine I've been through breakups. I can't imagine what a divorce feels like. And then you add kids. So I can't, I can't even picture my response, right? I'd have to temper my response. Mm. So a lot of people listening, if they're going through a divorce, they may, it may not occur to them that standing far apart, right? They may think that they're doing the best thing for them. So what are some of the other things in a high conflict divorce that, that caused you pain as you were growing up? You know, it's just uh, conflict, you know, I think just the, the constant tension, the, the, the tension that everybody feels, you know, it, it, not only in the divorce, but afterwards, I mean, divorces, when you get the judgment or whatever of, of the final dissolution of marriage, that's not the end of it, especially <laughs> right. with kids, right? Not that's with not, four kids. Right. That, that's not the prize. Yeah. You know, the prize is, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, the life that I, that I had to grow up in and it caused me a lot of pain and I didn't have outlets to deal with the pain. I didn't have healthy ways of dealing with it. You know, I, uh, he sort of flipped the script a little bit and, and being the, the mind I have or the alcoholic addict mind, whatever, I, I quickly realized that I could use this situation to my advantage, right? I knew my parents right, weren't right, talking right, right. to each other. I knew they didn't communicate. Right. So, and I also knew, figured out that they weren't parenting for parent of the year, but they started parenting right. for favorite parent. So mm. what time does dad let you, you know, what time's mm. dad, uh, what time's your curfew yeah. and your dad's? And I would yeah. stretch that truth a little bit. So yeah, I could yeah, stay yeah, yeah. later or the allowance. Yeah. Stretch you know, that they're once. not going to talk. <laughs> right. They're not talking to each other. Right. Right. And so like, I don't want to blame my parents, you know, yeah. for, for the path that I had to go down with drugs and alcohol. Cause I'm, I'm a true believer that whether, you know, they were living in a land of rainbow waterfalls and unicorns in their marriage that I would still sort of end up, you know, down the same path, but yes. it definitely did put a little miracle grow 
uh, on, yeah, on yeah, my yeah. disease and my, my mm. uh, alcohol and drug uh, career. What did alcohol and drugs, like what did it look like for you when it first started and what did it do for you? Well, I, I, I could tell you that I grew up in the uh, Nancy Reagan era of, of just say no. Just say no. Yeah. Just say That's no. A, it, do you, did you have people it, like to that end? I didn't have people like offering me. I was looking for drugs. I didn't have like, there wasn't like a, a buffet of drugs where I had to say no or people running up to me. Did you have that? Like, did you have people giving you drugs? I don't know in the beginning if I did, but once I found, you know, what drugs and alcohol did for me, you yeah. know, like you, like you said um is they worked i mean drugs yeah. and alcohol work and that's yeah. one thing about the just say no that when i tried you know alcohol and drugs i was like hmm these things work <laughs> you know mm -hmm. these things yep. make that my, my mind a little quieter this thing makes my you know physically i can be there but mentally yeah. i could be somewhere else or you know and it's just once i you know had that first experience with alcohol and then drugs uh i don't know if it was just like I walked to a party and it was like a buffet. Like I'd never really got, got down like that, but I started seeking people, you know, where it was okay, you know, where it was okay to do whatever, you know, we were doing, you know, I, it wasn't like I was ever at a party uh, in the beginning and somebody, you know, had a pile of cocaine, you know, and, right. Right. I had to say, Oh, just say no. I think it's, I think it's just a tiny stop on this thought, which is, I think it's interesting, like the people who are making, like in that case, Nancy Reagan, just say no, the people who are making these kind of policies, they don't understand addiction because the idea is that someone is trying to force you just say no, assumes that someone is putting this on you when really we're seeking a solution. We're seeking some sort of calm. And I don't know how many people are, someone is bombarded. I mean, I'm sure it happens, but like, it's more, yeah. we're, we're looking for something to fill that hole. And it's more about us seeking than it is other people putting. And I think if you understand that we're hiring drugs and alcohol to do a job for us, then you understand that that this idea of just saying no, right? Like this, these policies, they don't understand that we're this is our medicine. Right. And it's a false flag in a lot of ways because it's 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 not based in reality. Right. And you know, it's not really being honest or understanding, like I said, th that they work. I mean that they you know, work. You know, and, and some people, you know, uh who have this disease they work even better and, and people want to seek more and they like that feeling and they, they liked it. They've never, you know, had their mind so quiet or they've never felt so good about themselves or, yeah. I mean, you see it with normies, right. At, at cocktail parties, they yeah. have a couple yeah. of drinks. It works. They get a little lighter. It works. Yeah. I, I, my, my, you know, line is like, we hired it to do a job and then, and it worked for a while until it didn't. And we still have this, employed person, right. you know, we, person. It's, it's, yeah, this employed person who's no longer working, but we have this attachment to them. And so originally it was working out, right. It was, it was, right. this was a, a, a symbiotic relationship and now it's, it's not. How did you get to heroin at 19? So like you, you're using drugs. This is something that people ask me all the time. Like, how does, how does one go from like drinking and, and then all of a sudden they're doing this heavy drug that's very scary to people you know one thing again not blaming my parents but it is part of, you know part of the deal is growing up uh, i got in a lot of trouble and i never really faced the consequences mm -hmm. of whatever it was whether it was you know problems with the law problems with school uh, my parents were always there to bail me out 
I understand their intentions were that they didn't want me to, you know, Help jeopardize yeah. my career or future or yeah. whatever it is. So the intentions I think were, were, were pure, but it never made me realize that, you know, choices have consequences. And, and, and so, like I said, it was, a, I haven't said, but it was a progression, right? It just didn't start off with having a drink in sixth grade at a, at a party. And then all of a sudden I'm, you know, slamming the dope <laughs> and living, you know, right. It, it, right. It, it was a progressive thing, but, but every single step of the way, the theme was there was no real thought between, or there was no window between the thought and the action, right? So some friend had cocaine or some friend had pot. I smoked the pot. I liked it. Some friend, mm-hmm. you know, friend, maybe we'd want to try cocaine. Try it. There was never like a window of maybe this isn't the best idea. Maybe this isn't the best, you know, choice. And then uh, I think about 19 years old, a friend of mine had, had, had we got talking about uh, heroin and, and we decided to try it. I smoked it the first time, didn't really uh, see what the big whoop to do was. And then the second time we, we did it intravenously and uh, not to sound too dramatic, but I felt like I kissed Jesus. You know, I felt like I had, you know, the, the, Every emotion, every uh, negative, I, I was numb. It was exactly what and how I wanted to feel. It's the strongest painkiller on the planet, right? Like opiates are the strongest painkiller pain on the planet. We were people who were in a lot of pain. This, the fact that it was mental anguish didn't actually make that big of a It still worked for the mental anguish. It just worked differently. And quicker. Much quicker. I mean, it, it, much quicker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's really no quicker way uh, to, to get the relief nope. than, than, than the way I was doing it. And it was a quick spiral. You know, I mean, I think the one thing is about my, although relatively short, but my drinking and using career is I was always able to sort of manage. I was able, always able to get, you know, good grades. Now, how I got those grades weren't the most above board honest way, right? Uh, but, right. But, but, but so I could go home and say, look, everything's great. You know, mm-hmm. I'm getting good grades. I, I got into a great college uh, because somehow I had a, a pretty good uh, uh, soccer career. And, and, and so I was able, always able to sort of manage and juggle these balls in my life, right? And, and school and work and girlfriend and family and soccer and sort of everything else. And then, you know, I tried heroin that day and it, it, it I don't think everybody's this story, but mine is that it was quick. I mean, it was, you know, the next day, let's get more. Um, and, and within, you know, a couple of months, I was a full-fledged, uh, you know, junkie heroin addict. And uh, all of a sudden, all these balls, one by one, started dropping off. And, uh, you know, within a year, year and a half, I was just left with one. Uh, and, and that was my disease. Yeah. So I so relate to that. I say, and you probably get this too. When I tell people how old I was when I got sober, there's sort of like, sometimes there's like, really, what would you have done by 19 to, right. and I think that had I been using, ju- and I say just, but in, in this case, like just cocaine and alcohol, it would have taken me longer then shooting heroin is like a, is a fast track. Accelerant. Yeah. It's right. an accelerant. Exactly. And so in some ways, in some ways, right. Because I was lucky that got me to recovery a lot faster than had I been using just alcohol and cocaine. And again, I say those things, understanding that it's not just. Right. 
But the longevity, I guess, or the the longevity, yeah, possibility of a longer career, a longer uh, career, yeah, if you will, uh, is definitely there. And you know, I get the same thing, and you know, I just respond, well, you know, 28 years ago, and some change, I I was clinically dead, I was flatlined, right? So, tell us about, tell us about that. I had this uh, wonderful idea, my dad had decided to take us, uh, his kids to Hawaii on a vacation and was something sort of out of the norm for him. And and so I had this beautiful idea playing in my head that I was going to go to Hawaii. I was going to take a couple of, uh, you know, Xanax and other stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, sip on a Mai Tai uh, and kick dope on the beach of, uh, of Hawaii. <laughs> You're going to kick dope on your family vacation. Yeah. Brilliant idea. Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, right. So anybody Fucking listening, brilliant. Like, right. This is, this is the way that, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, think, makes right? total sense. It was a master plan, and you know, I brought out what could go. I brought wrong? out the volume and or whatever the 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 uh, Xana, whatever it was, and uh, I was over there, and within 24 hours, and and, and one thing about you know, kicking dope is uh, I was able to drink more alcohol than I could ever possibly consume and not get drunk, but you know, still sort of obviously the effects of, uh, of drinking. And I don't, I mean, my brother and sister tell a story that just, it's horrific, but I was out of my mind that night and I don't remember any of it. And, uh, you know, I, I woke up choking my, my brother woke up and I was choking him. And then I said, he didn't understand. I grabbed my mattress and I dragged it down to the beach and put it on. Anyways, I was on the plane the next day, uh, back to San Francisco and six hours or plus on that plane ride uh, was horrific. Um, and I was popping these, you know, whatever I had, like Tic Tacs and asking the uh, stewardess. I, I probably was like a four-year-old. Like, how much longer? Uh, sir, about a half an hour since <laughs> more or uh, less than the last time you asked. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I went home. Uh, I got in my car. I went to, you know, score uh, dope. I went to my house and I was um, talking to a girl that I was seeing on the phone while I was, you know, uh, you know, fixing up and explained to her what happened in Hawaii. And, you know, meanwhile, trying to pretend like um, everything was fine. And uh, next thing I know, uh, my door has been broken down. Paramedics are standing over me, you know, but, 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 but for the grace of God, I mean, there isn't, I think a time where my cell phone cuts out that I don't think about that day because I was not on a cell phone. It was before cell phones. Uh, and I was on a landline. And landlines just don't cut out, right? And, and so she had enough presence and wherewithal to understand that something was wrong. Yeah. And if it were a cell phone, I, I probably wouldn't be here today. So blessed, you know, and, and lucky. Uh, so that was my yeah. um, overdose story and, and and sort of got me into treatment, but got me into treatment because I needed to go to treatment, not because I wanted to go to treatment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about, do you think that people have to want to go to treatment? Even What about if they know they need it and they're willing to go? So I think it happens. Uh, the miracle happens in different ways. Uh, you yeah. know, I think that the thing for me, even though I, you know, had continued using after I got out of my first treatment, the seed was planted. You right. know, so whatever got me to that, you know, 28 day program, you know, the girl's like, you're telling your mom or I'm telling her. 
And so I came clean and, you know, she said behind door number one is love and support and, you know, treatment mm-hmm. and, or behind door number two is persona non grata. Now I, you know, I'd done the street thing and, you know, lived in these terrible places and I'm not really cut out for it. <laughs> so, you know, like every uh, good alcoholic addict, I chose door number one. Um, and, and I remember the first day of intake, there was this uh, counselor who, you know, sent, helped me out so much in my, in my life, not only that day, but throughout my uh, recovery the second time and, 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 and even after, but uh, you know, he, he was checking the boxes and asking me these questions. He said, at the end, he said, you know what, let me just tell you something. It's a pretty simple program. All you have to do is change your whole life. <laughs> and I'm thinking my back of the head, my head is there's no way I'm doing anything. So that's where my relapse began. You know, I went and did yeah. the 28 days. I stayed sober, you know, uh, maybe a month after two months after, but in that rehab, I, uh, I was, uh, named the, the everything's cool guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we'd be, we'd be, in, and I was like, "What does that mean?" I was like, "Because you'd be in group, and you would, you know, we'd go around. There's like a circle, and you, somebody would talk, and you would always say, well, here's what you need to do. You need to read page four forty nine, you know, and, and practice accepting.' And I'm giving out all this advice that I'd picked up and sponged, and you know, great bullshit artist. And then it would get to me and be my turn, and be like, "Oh, everything's cool, everything's fine. You know, sobriety's great, and and not willing to be vulnerable or open on, on any level." or, you know, express, you know, what was really going on with me. And, but like you said, the, the seed was planted and, and, and eventually when I did go out and relapse, it was never the same. You know, the, the, one of my favorite expressions is a belly full of martini and a head full of AA are the worst combination ever skull and crossbones. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, you know, I, I, I knew at that point, you know, what was what. So, you know, whatever gets people to rooms uh, or, right. or, or to rehab, um, if it's a, if it's a loved one pushing. Now, a love, what I will say in my experience is whether it's need or want that gets people to go to their first meeting or, or, or to admit help or, or to seek help. If it's for some, but, but I don't know anybody who can stay sober for somebody else and stay sober out of need for any long right? period of yeah time because yeah. it's it's a want thing and 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 my memory's real short uh as far as you know how, how bad it was or i think the the want is, is something that i still have today you know i want to be sober and and not yeah. not out of need yes agree agree i think it's starting somewhere is important and the seeds you know you don't a lot of people don't realize that even in a relapse the seeds have been planted that there's stuff that's going to help them down the road. Even if it, if it seems like treatment was a waste, it wasn't, it's, it's, it's an important part and it's very confusing to watch. I'm sure. Yeah. And you know, the, the expression relapse is part of recovery. Yeah. I don't necessarily believe that, yeah. but, but it can be, I do believe it can be exactly. And it was yeah. for me it is, yeah. is I learned uh, from what I had done in my relapse, and I didn't repeat the same mistakes. So it's not part of recovery. It's not a past. Oh, I'm relapsed. Yeah. It's part of my recovery. Yeah. It is if you use it to get recovery. What did it take for you to get clean and sober? So you know the the uh, big event, an overdose, like clinically dead. You know, to to a normal person would have been like, okay, that's enough, right? But for me, not me, <laughs> right, right, and, and not for a lot of people. Yeah. So I so I had relapsed. Um, and meanwhile, playing off to mom, uh, dad, and, and this guy Mike, who I had seen, uh, Mike Nerona, who, who was that counselor who told me that advice. Mm-hmm. I you know was going to him every week and you know talking about how great recovery is and you know just 
BSing about school and and actually got kicked out of school, but telling mom that I'm still in school and, and, mm. and leading this life. Um, and, and one morning I woke up, I looked at myself in the mirror and my first thought was, you have not looked at yourself in the mirror in a long time. And it was just such a, like a, like a moment of, has this always been here? <laughs> but for the first time that I can remember in a long time, I saw the person staring back at me for exactly who that person was. That was a hopeless junkie. And so it wasn't other, you know, outside stuff that, you know, uh, whether it be with the law or with hospitals or, or whatever it was, it was just that moment. It was where I, you know, got honest. And, and I would say that's where the first seed of, of wanting it uh, was planted. What did you do when you, you know, did, okay, we're going to do this. So this is actually kind of a, uh, a funny story, I guess, but uh, looking back on it. So I, so I had known that day that I was going to Mike and my mom was going to be there. So I had this whole thing planned out. I was going to pull my covers and I was going to be honest. And I got there and, and, and I said, and it might've been before my mom was there or not. I can't remember, but I told Mike uh, that I relapsed uh, and I've been relapsed for you know quite a while now. And he looked at me and he said, no shit. <laughs> It's about time. <laughs> like he had known, right? I mean, but he, mm-hmm. he he was just such a non you know nonsense guy that you know he asked me if I was sober and all that yeah. stuff, and I you know I was lying to him, paying him whatever uh, money every month, every week to go lie to him. But and then I I uh, you know we we came up a plan to to get me back into to to rehab to detox, and I was a. Uh, you know, willing, I was going there. I was like, you know, okay, I'm going to do this. And, and then I started getting a little dope sick, you know, and the willingness sort of yeah. with every sort of passing hour, uh, yeah. the willingness, you know, got less and less. And Mike and my mom came into my room. I was, it's in a, the, the rehab was actually in a hospital, like on the fourth floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was in a hospital room and bed and, and, and they said, here's the plan. After your detox, you're going to go to this place called the Henry Olaf House, um, which was a six-month men's uh, residential treatment place. And they told me about it. And I said to them, I would rather die than go to the Henry Olaf House. And Mike said, what'd you say? I said, I'd rather die than go. To the... And he goes, are you serious? I go, yeah, I'm not going there. I'd rather die. Uh, just a side note, don't say that in the hospital. Especially in California, um, you go in fifty-one fifty. Yes, and that's what happened. And uh, I didn't go quietly. You know, they brought some big guys in white coats, and I was uh, fighting them off like uh, you know uh, Game of Thrones. And they eventually got <laughs> me in uh, a straitjacket and put a uh, needle in my ass. And uh, next thing I knew, I don't know how long it was, I woke up still in the straitjacket uh, in the psych ward mm. on, on a fifty-one fifty for being a danger to myself or others. The nurse came in. Uh, and she said, oh, we're going to take the straight jacket off for you. Can you behave yourself? Uh, and I said, yes. And I took it off and they felt comfortable that I was going to behave myself. And they said, well, you can go down to the common room if you want. Um, and, and I did the Thorazine shuffle down to that uh, the common room and I walked in and there was other you know patients in there and they were going about their normal business. They were watching TV, playing games, talking on the phone. Mm-hmm. Only problem was there was no games. Uh, there was no TV. There was no phone. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was one flew over the cuckoo's nest uh, and, and that's not, you know, hyperbole. It was, but it was right where I belonged. It was uh, at that moment, that was the uh, real turning point. I was still sick. I was still, you know, but it was like, this is, this is where it ends up. 
you know, right. uh, you know, you've already been on one path where it ends up. This is yep. you know, jails, uh, hospitals and institutions. And I'd been to all three, not quite death. Uh, although I did, you know, I guess clinically die, but, and, uh, so I went to the Henry all house. Uh, it was, a, it was a wonderful place that built a foundation, just like, you know, when you build a house, right. You got to build it on a strong foundation yep. for when the storm comes, uh, that it's still standing. Uh, and, and it taught me about accountability. It taught, told me about consequences, about being on time. That was the foundation of my sobriety and then get involved in, in really in the middle of the boat with meetings and young people's groups and, and, and all, all the other stuff. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. Oh, we've got meetings. I just wanted to let you know because I think that you will love them. It doesn't matter if you're trying to figure out how to navigate relationships in your sobriety or trying to get your nutrition to a healthier place or working on your parenting recovery or just trying to find meditation that will work for you. You've been trying to do it. You know it's good for you, but they all make you sit too still and you're really not into mantras and you're not sure if you're supposed to sit in a chair or the couch or your bed. There are so many support groups to choose from, more than 70 a week, and I'm sure you'll find one that you love. I'd like to give you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the Lion Rock Life app and use promo code COURAGE at checkout for one month free of meetings. Again, go to lionrock.life or download the Lion Rock Life app. Use promo code COURAGE for one month of free meetings. Okay, back to the show. So, okay, so you go to Henry Olaf House, you build this foundation, you start to build a life as we do. You get involved in young people's and 12-step. You meet a woman and get married. Yep. After, you know, sort of graduation from the Olaf house, you know, then life starts and I, you know, got my first apartment, all these sort of rites of passages. Right. And, and then uh, there was a nightclub um, that was owned by a sober guy, the, the bar, head of the bar uh, was, was sober. So it was a bunch of sober guys. Security was all sober. And I go as a, as a general manager and I, you know, have my sort of first real job. Uh, and then this woman walks in, you know, one night. You know, the, the there was it was a pretty big club, about thirty thousand square feet, and there was a big white zone, and, and we had to keep the white zone clear of people of cars because we had to you know get three thousand people in and out of this club. And this car pulls up, like screeches into the white zone, and so I walk over there, and my attention is to get this car to keep keep it moving. And I walk up, and the windows go down, and all of a sudden, there's two you know women in there, and it immediately goes from how do I get these women out of this spot. To how do I get them into the club? Uh, you know, and, uh, right. you know, one of them was Nikki and, uh, met her. Uh, she wasn't sober. You know, we immediately connected and, and, you know, laughed and, you know, had a great time. And, and, uh, yeah. So I, you know, I, I met Nikki soon after. I wouldn't say soon after, but a year and a half, two years after we were, uh, started dating, her family and her were moving to Tampa. And I had, lived my whole life in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, you know, I went to high school, elementary school, Redden City. I went to high school five blocks down the street from my elementary school. And then I made a big move uh, over the Bay to Berkeley uh, for college. So my whole, you know, my yeah, whole yeah. life. And, and then I meet this, you know, woman and and she wants, you know, asked me to come. That's the right word, but, you know, wants me to come, I guess. Yeah. Maybe she didn't at the time. Oh, who knows? <laughs> uh, suggest, brought, highly, suggest. Su- strongly right. suggested. Right. Uh, looking back, she probably didn't want me to come. Uh, she could have taken it back. Again, the, the, the sometimes the 
thought process or the consequences of, of some decisions aren't really my uh, forte or my strong point. And, you know, we were at that age. I was in my mid 20s, late 20s ish. She was in her mid 20s. You know, society sort of told us we've been dating, people had asked us, and now we're making this big move. And so I asked her to marry me. Uh, and she said yes. And we moved uh, across the country to Tampa, Florida. And, uh, you know, right to right from the middle of San Francisco, where our house was, uh, to a golfing community in North Tampa, sort of outside the, the uh, about 20 minutes outside of the city. And it was a major change for me. Uh, and, and I went to meetings. The meetings were different. As you say, the meetings weren't different. My mind told me the, because yeah. the, because, because what really was going on, looking back on it was I had seven years of sobriety, but I felt like a newcomer again. And I didn't yeah. like that feeling. And uh, so I judged the meetings, the people, the, you know, my, my intellect went into full overtime. And, uh, you know, so I stopped going to meetings um, because they did it differently in Tampa. And then I started really resenting Nikki for moving me to Tampa. Mm. And it was her fault. Uh, you right. know, like she had, she had kidnapped me and threw me in the back of a coupe de ville, uh, and, and, and drove me to Tampa. Right. And, and so we talk about this dry drunk, uh, or being out dry drunk. And, you know, I had, I had stopped working on myself. I had stopped working with others. And it's amazing how far away from that spiritual path, uh, I got and really just started pointing the finger at Nikki and everybody else, my like taking no, I'd lost all sort of, for me, spirituality. I mean, there's so many levels, but, but, but being accountable and being able to see my mistakes and my errors. And, and, and when I'm not on the path, th that all goes out the window. So that's where I was, uh, you know, at, uh, you know, I think eight, nine years of sobriety. How did that end up affecting your relationship? Looking back on it, um, and one of the reasons that we, you know, have a great friendship and, you know, all that is I was eventually able to, you know, come back to, 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 to the path uh, and, and realize that the only way I could say that it affected it is I wouldn't want to be married to me either at that point. You know, the other thing about, you know, denial, not only about the, you know, the drinking or whether we belong in the psych ward or whatever it is, but also how I show up in, in the world is a completely different reality yeah. than reality, right? My yeah. reality of how I'm showing, like I wasn't the man, I wasn't the husband, I wasn't the father that I sort of had envisioned. She was the problem. You know, it was her fault. If only she had done this, if only she had done that. And so it affected in a major, major way. I, you know, I, I, I was a not happy, blaming, miserable human. You know, it's funny. I, I went to um, therapy at some point we could talk about but after I had this sort of another moment of clarity about, you know, the, the, the divorce and the end of the marriage, but I was in this therapy session and, and uh, I saw the best therapist. Her name was Barbara. She was like seven years old. I came in one day. I said, Barbara, I think I got it. He's like, what? I said, I think I'm a narcissist. And she started laughing. And I said, Barbara, what's so funny? Like, I thought we had a breakthrough. Like, this is a big deal. I was reading about <laughs> it and I sort of had all the, she goes, no, you're just an asshole. Right. She goes, <laughs> I love it. Right. It was and the way it was oh, presented, Barbara. like, you know, Bo Barbara. Right. And, 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 you know, and then she elaborated. She goes, you're just a hurt and wounded, you know, man. And it looks and feels and smells, you know, maybe like narcissism. But let me assure you that no narcissist with a true NPR, you know, or narcissist personality disorder, whatever yeah. those initials are, uh, would come into my office and say that he or she is a narcissist. You know, I just, I, I just was a, you know, not, not a very happy person and, and neither was not Nikki and, you know, two unhappy people 
do not can never or will never equal a happy marriage. Right. Right. No, that's true. Do you think that had you been working, had you been going to those meetings and working that program in Tampa, let's say, do you think that would have changed the trajectory of the marriage? I mean, not that it matters, but no, I, you know, it's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. Uh, and, and I don't believe so because I, I, I think that Nikki and I, and this is also, you know, 15 years later after divorce and knowing her for 20, right, you know, right. five years or, or, or whatever, but you know, put it this way on our wedding day, she got sick after she said yes. And she was at a rehearsal. I mean, really like she had to go lay down and, and take off her wedding dress and disappeared from her, her own wedding for, you know, two hours. I also was sitting in the mirror, uh, getting ready again, mirrors. I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, doing my hair before, you know, while I was getting dressed and looking at myself and saying, you shouldn't do be doing this. Mm. Looking back on it. That was my spirit talking. Like that was a true, this is, this is what it is, Ben. I'm telling you, you shouldn't be doing this, but I intellectualized it. And I said, Oh, you're just cold feet. Everybody goes through it, you know, but, but my spirit was talking to me uh, and I just didn't listen. And along the way, you know, look, we went through every red light, every stop sign, every railroad crossing, like everything, every sign that we weren't put on this earth to be, you know, married. I love her. She loves me. We're best friends. Uh, we we got the in love and loving each other mixed up. There wasn't a lot of passion. There wasn't a lot of romance. There wasn't a lot of intimacy from the, from the start. I don't think that if I had done all that, that, that we were truly going to ever last a, a, as a couple. We might have, yeah. but I don't know. And I'm glad we didn't, to be honest, because you know we are much happier people uh, and, and much better off being uh, brother and sister and best friends than we were husband and wife ever. Coming from the high conflict divorce as a child, right? So now you have a child. Now it's, you know, I'm I'm putting words in your mouth, but mm-hmm. it's clear you're going to get divorced. So that somehow that decision gets made. What are your thoughts about, oh my God, am I repeating this? Or I'm going to do it differently? Or like what happens with someone who's been through this and it was so affected by it? Right. And, and this is, you know, part of the story that, really shows the emotion uh, and, and the powerfulness of, of, of a divorce is, you know, for, for me, my two big fuck you buttons are romance and finance, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you press those two and, you know, I'm fight or flight, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, because they speak right to my ego and divorce obviously uh, is rapid fire pressing those buttons. And so I was not a spiritually grounded person Right. Uh, when, when Nikki and I broke up, uh, I, I was unable to, for, to see accountability. I was unable to see or even admit my part of the, you know, uh, my, my, my part in the marriage ending. Um, and it was all her fault. So I made a first call to, after doing the research of the best and biggest shark lawyer in Tampa. And I went and I sat down, I told him what I wanted. And, you know, that was to destroy Nikki, embarrass her, show the world mm-hmm. what a fraud she was and how this was her right. fault. And, you know, a week later, after taking a pretty big retainer check, he wrote, uh, you know, a game plan, uh, a strategic game plan on how we were going to accomplish all the things that I'd asked him for. Meanwhile, the umbrella is that I'd already lived this, right? I'd lived in this world. Here I was going to go do it again. Anyways, I carried this this thing around my backpack for like a, two weeks or something. And I was on a red eye back from LA uh, to Tampa. And I don't know what it was, 
my higher power works in real mysterious ways. I don't know if it was because of the, you know, the three o'clock in the morning or the fluorescent lights on, on you know, on the airplane, mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe that I was 40,000 feet closer to what, you know, if you believe in God, the, the, <laughs> right, right. You know, but, uh, I started reading it and I took it out and I started reading it. I got about t- only two pages into this like 35 page thing. All of a sudden for the first time in a long time, I was honest and I was aware and not only realizing what this was going to lead to for my son, because I had lived it, but I was able to tap into my experience as a kid and, and the pain that I had to go through. But also at that moment, you know, I got, you know, the, the, the foundation of the, of the sobriety sort of came up. And for the most part, it takes two to make a relationship. It takes two to ruin it. So there's no way that this could be all Nikki's fault. And so, you know, I called him on Monday and said, thank you. No, thank you. I didn't read the rest of it. I said, thank you. No, thank you. And then I made the call to the person that I should have called the first time. And that was to my therapist and my sponsor. Uh, and I got back to bed. And then I called Nikki and said, look, I need time. I'm not in any right mindset to, to do this or to go through this process. And, you know, she was very gracious. Uh, and so take as much time as you need. And so I went back to, you know, went back to basics and, 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 you know, went back to working the steps from step one around, you know, this issue and others that had come up. And, you know, ironically, you know, the, uh, the four step and the inventory and all that stuff was much more damaging, much more there at, you know, I, I think I maybe uh, 10 years or whatever I had a sprite than it was the first time around. But uh, I got, again, got back to the, the basics and, 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 uh, started working on myself and started working on my side of the street. And as hard as it was not to look over Nikki still, that wasn't my responsibility. And, you know, I'm responsible for my own change and just got back to the basics. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and, and relatable, you know, I've had some gnarly bottoms in recovery right? in sobriety and they're, they're painful because I don't have the stuff to use anymore. And, and if I do use any of the, you know, cross addictions, it doesn't feel good. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, no. it doesn't, doesn't work, you know? And I, well, I think at this point in the proceedings, like uh, I, I got to be pretty clear that there's nothing, there's no other solution, no chemical, no shopping, no sex, no other solution uh, to a spiritual problem except, except for a spiritual solution. Right. And, and that's not to say that, you know, I haven't tried everything, right. I haven't, you know, <laughs> totally. you know I'm here to say that there's no other solution. You know, I called Nikki and I asked her to coffee I, I apologized. I told her I loved her. I, I said I'm sorry for what I've done. I, you know, I, I realized that the cost of being married to somebody like me and the way I was showing up must have been really hard on you. Uh, and then, you know, something amazing happened. And, and, and like, you know, men's are there's no intense, you know, there's no premeditation. There's no that I'm going to get something in return, you know, for this amends. But it was just really to clean up my side of the street uh, with any without any expected outcome. And but she apologized to me. And in 25 years of knowing each other, uh, even today, I think it's really the first time and only time we've ever really apologized to each other. But it was the most important part, right? Because we were able to... Now, it didn't, again, turn into some happy divorce right after. We didn't you know, go on bliss. And But there's something about that moment where it feels before, before I walked in the coffee shop that it was so hard to breathe. Like there was an elephant. There was so much yeah. anxiety sitting in my chest. And as soon as yeah. I let it go, even before she apologized to me, it just became a little easier to take a breath. There was some space. Yeah. You know, there was some space where there really hadn't been any space before. Yeah. Um, and, and um, you know, it, 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 like I said, it didn't all of a sudden get better, but 
looking back on it, that was the first step of leaving all of our shit and mm-hmm. the wreckage of our marriage in the rearview mirror instead of sitting there in the wreckage looking at the dead body, you know, and I don't want to get too graphic, but <laughs> you know, just keep it moving, you know, look at the, you know, in the rearview yes. mirror, acknowledge that there was an accident, but not sit in the accident and pick right. up all the, you know, and, and so that was the first step to leaving that part of it in the past. What is our happy divorce and what, what was the goal with that? So the, um, we, you know, after that coffee shop and after that, uh, you know, I think there's two parts of, uh, of a uh, divorce and that's the emotional side. And then there's the business side, right. Uh, Of splitting the assets and making business decisions. You know, we, we cleaned up the emotional side because we worked on ourselves and didn't rush into a divorce and didn't. And then there was a commitment from both of us to do what was best for our son and truly do what's best for, you know, our son. And, and I could convince myself if I'm, if I'm making decisions off of ego, why or the guy date, she was dating wasn't good for Asher. But, you know, I think our big secret, we faked until we made it. You know, and it'd be probably, you know, very mm-hmm. familiar with that uh, expression because you hear it a lot in, in the rooms and we put on our big boy pants, you know, and, and, and we sat next to each other. You know, earlier in the show, we were talking about how my yep. parents didn't. And we sat next to each other yep. at, at Asher's, uh, my son, our son's school events. And so he didn't have to walk over and make that decision. And and she was the right. last person I wanted to sit next to. And, you know, vi- and, and, and vice versa. But we did it anyways. Uh, and then somewhere, can't tell you when, we actually enjoyed sitting next to each other. And so we go on with our normal lives. It just becomes so much better and each day, and then we start taking family vacations. She gets remarried. I get remarried. I have two little kids and we become this like unit. And then, you know, social media comes around. We start posting stuff like, you know, people do and and, and people are like, what's going on with those health funds? Like what? So you guys go on vacation with both your spouses and your kids? Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes Asher, our son, Nikki and I go away. Like we took Asher because he was always just uh, his thing as a kid. I think all kids have sort of uh, obsessions. We're animals. He knew every animal. He want, he didn't want to read Dr. Seuss books. He wanted to read animal encyclopedias. And so if, if anything was going to send our divorce south, it was uh, if one of us took him to South Africa or to Africa on a safari without the other one. So a couple of years ago, we decided to take him. Uh, and it's not like we didn't invite our spouses, but they didn't. You know, Nadia, my wife, is raising two kids, young kids, and Nikki's husband's the sheriff of, of Hillsborough County. So it's not like they could have taken two weeks off. But their response was, oh, hell no, you're not going on vacation with your ex-husband in the middle of the uh, Serengeti. Are you crazy? Like, oh, Asher would love that. That's great. So all this is happening, unfolding. People are asking us questions like, what's going on? Is this some like polygamy? Like the people didn't quite understand it, right? Yeah, fair. Because it's because it's really Unusual. a little bit absurd, right? And then, you know, using the, the, the stuff I learned in my life about how I've made the most change is not necessarily through doctors or therapists or, you know, whatever, but it's relatedness. It's about talking with somebody who's, who has that shared experience. And so I, you know, I had the idea one day of, of telling our story, but the only way I was going to do it, just like it took, you know, two of us to ruin our marriage. It takes two, it took two of us to make our happy divorce. And so the only way I was going to do it was to convince Nikki to write it with me. And, and she's not, I guess, as forthcoming or open uh, as I am, uh, but she agreed to do it. The motivation behind writing the book is just to people who are going through it, 
just to give them a little bit of hope that it can be a different way. And, and I learned that not because I'm some genius, but I learned about that, you know, being in, in, in 12 step programs. And the other thing is that, you know, I know people listen to our story and like, Oh yeah. You know, who are going through divorce, like, yeah, but my ex is this, you know, or, you know, right. That's what I was there's, gonna no, say, like- there's no way that the, you know, first of all, they're, they're probably full of shit. Right. There's no way that this could possibly be real or my ex or whatever, you know, sort of blockage they have to, to, to hearing it. But I would, if you, if you are listening to that and you, you, you are thinking that way, I just urge people to leave a little bit of space for hope about the possibility that it could happen. Right. And, and, and because if you had told us, and I use this analogy a lot, uh, I don't know if you remember sitting in your first couple of meetings, but hearing people who were talking, you know, when they celebrated the lengths, of sobriety and they'd say 30 days and say full of shit no way right or, or you know much less 10 years or 15 years like i was, it was just so full of judgment that because it was but but not but but at the same time it was just so far outside the, right. the realm of my possibility right. somebody could go it just 30 days possible yeah. it was just not possible if you had told nikki and i well if you told me 28 years ago that i'd be sitting on a podcast talking about my sobriety uh i'd be telling you you're out of your effing mind, right? And, yep. and but at the same time, if you told me 14, 15 years ago that I'd be talking about on a podcast talking about my sobriety about a book I wrote with my ex-wife called Our Happy Divorce, I would have looked at you like you were sideways. You know, one day at a time, I got, I got to 20 years and one day at a time of, of this post-marriage uh, life with Nikki and I, we got to this place that's that, that's magical. What do you say? I'm sure you you're sure you get questions or rebuttals to our happy divorce all the time, how people's situations are different. In my head, I have this, I, I hear sponsors and therapists say things like, you need to take care of yourself. You need to set a boundary. I'm thinking about the play, the, like the shared play at the kid's school. And I'm thinking about the therapist or the sponsors and you don't need to put yourself like you're showing up for them, but you don't need to cause yourself this. If you, if this makes you shaky or this, you can set these boundaries. And I'm thinking about the circumstances where people are trying to take care of themselves so that they can show up where they're so activated by this other person. And maybe even when they try to fake it till they make it, the other person is not faking it till they make it. If it's one-sided, is this even possible? Because that Nikki was, Nikki was in on it. Right. So. And, and our partners are, into it too, right? And, and right. They, they have complete buy-in and they right. help this machine go just as much as Nick and I. I think that over time of living this, you know, not that I've kept, you know, before the book kept up with divorce trends or whatever, but but I do think it would be naive to think that this would work for everybody, right? Right. Uh, because okay. it takes yeah. because it takes two. But I but but I I think my definition. I think Nikki were here too. She would agree. Uh, that that the definition of our happy divorce isn't this you know crazy world that Nikki and I live in, living five houses apart, travel, you know, all this other you know ridiculousness that might sound ridiculous. But it's that you don't stick your kids with the emotional bill. Like if you guys want to fight and you know f each other to you know or send mean texts or whatever, that's fine. You can take you know as much poison as you want. You know, uh, you know, trying to try, trying to kill the other person, but that's fine. But just don't do it in front of your kids. So if you cannot hand your kids the emotional bill, 
Right. Uh, for, for your decisions as adults, that's a happy divorce. Right. Right. And, and, and so, so if, if they can come out unscathed as you know, as much as possible, you know, that, 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 that's a happy divorce and, and, and happy divorce is, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's obviously great for Asher. He has a great situation, uh, but it's also a happy, you know, for, for Nikki and I. I think your story really encompasses like the, the commonality that I see through it is that you go back to basics and the fake it till you make it, or I, I like act as if, right? right? Because fake it till you make it has like this fake connotation. And I like act as if, because you, you force your, you're like, this is what I want it to look like. So I'm going to act like it looks like that. And it's manifesting it. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Manifesting. Yeah. And, and I feel like so much, of recovery is like that because you don't have the habits. You don't have the, the neural pathways. You don't have those things when you first start, you don't, that's what the suit up and show up is. And eventually it, you know, you act your way into right thinking, but I'm not very good at thinking my way into right action. No, that's where I get in most of my trouble. Yeah. When I, <laughs> the word thinking, I mean, I've mentioned my uh, intellect a couple of times and it's, it, you know, it, it, it's strong, but it also is cunning, baffling and powerful on, you know, the ways it can convince me that things are right or wrong or, or judgmental or uh, cynical Right, is a big characteristic. Right. Yeah. I always have to remember I'm sleeping with the enemy and she's right up here. The same place that's defending against the first drink or shitty decision is also the same place where the shitty decision idea is stored. It's got to be, It's we have to be vigilant in a different way. No question. And, you know, the whole, again, the, the, the recipe, you know, for our happy divorce wasn't something that, you know, Nikki or I came up with, you know, yeah. it, it really was, was what I learned, you know, in, in the program. And it's pretty simple. You know, it's it's about, you know, maybe there's a problem uh, being accountable for it and, and, and cleaning up the wreckage. Where can people find our happy divorce? Do you have social media or places where they can contact you? Yeah, it's everything uh, at our happy divorce. Not not that difficult, thank God. But uh, and also, if the you know the books sold anywhere, books are sold Amazon. Uh, if you're interested in a book, and for whatever reason you can't afford, we'd love to get you and your uh, partner. Uh, one. That's amazing. Well, I love this and I love that there's a, a, a guidebook for people out there because again, you know, the statistics show that this is a, something that happens a lot. So we need, we need more people talking about how to do it so that we don't have constantly traumatized children. Yeah. And, and I will just admit, throw a disclaimer out there that this is how we did it. We're not doctors, lawyers, therapists. We don't right. have any initials behind our names. We're just two people who had a human experience who who, who got it right. And yeah. this is this is our story. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I appreciate the work that you've done and important for people to stay sober a long time to show us that it still works in all of the chapters of life with all of the lifey things that happen. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for coming on here and talking to me about it. Well, I, I'm very grateful and appreciative for you and, and sharing your platform and you know, all the good things you're doing. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan and I'm glad when you know I reached out that, that somebody was there to, to, to respond. So thank yeah. you for sharing your platform with us. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings 
useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.